Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 94, Horizontal and Vertical Enlightenment. Philosopher and longtime Buddhist practitioner Ken Wilbur continues a big picture exploration of the spiritual terrain as well as another dimension of his philosophy which he calls vertical enlightenment. Listen in to find out why enlightenment, in the more traditional sense, isn't the be-all, end-all of human development. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. One of the things I really appreciated when I first picked up your work was that you were a champion for this view that that the meditative training is a discipline that can be mastered, that we can take up a practice like you're saying and do the practice correctly. And if we have good guidance and some good maps and, and the right kind of effort with it, then we will actually make progress. And so in your book, uh, Integral Spirituality, you mentioned that it can take anywhere from five to 20 years. And I'm guessing that's just like a ballpark. Um, But I found that really interesting that you're saying, yeah, that there is actually amount of time that if you're practicing correctly, and I've heard, you know, in in the personal development literature, 10,000 hours is what it usually takes to master a discipline. So I'm I'm wondering, given that you're willing to talk pretty openly about uh, what it takes to master this stuff, I was wondering if you could share a little about the process of mastery itself and how long does it take? Are we talking about sitting on the cushion for like 10 minutes a day for a few years and we're going to kind of go through this stuff or or does it actually take more kind of commitment and discipline? Well, you can answer that in sort of both ways. The enlightened state itself is an ever-present awareness and is something that can be pointed out by an enlightened master really within an hour or two. And that's because it is indeed an awareness that everybody has within them. And there are many different ways to describe this. Christian contemplative tradition would describe it as the sense of I amness. And that sense of I amness is also quite similar to the way it's described in Vedanta. And the notion there is that there is something in you right now that is essentially unchanged from what was in you an hour ago or two hours ago. If you are aware of yourself right now, you'll notice that something in you seems to be unchanging. Something in you seems to be essentially the same from moment to moment. And if you try to remember what was happening to you a couple hours ago, you probably can't remember too much. But one thing that you will recall is that this sense of I amness was present. And if you think back a year, you probably won't be able to remember any of the experiences going on then, except this I amness was present. And this I amness is the same I amness that was in you. Well, Zen has a koan. Show me your original face, the face you had before your parents were born. That original face is a true self, is unqualifiable, selfless I amness, and it is indeed present prior to your parents' birth. Because it's present prior to time. It's present prior to entering the stream of time. So it's something that indeed is present prior to your parents' birth. It's present prior to the Big Bang. And that I 
amnes is something that can be pointed out sort of the way I'm doing it right now, only it just kind of goes on for half hour to an hour or so and is several different types of examples are given to the student until they get a pretty good sense of this ever-present enlightened state. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, that state can be demonstrated and shown to a student in not too much time, in a couple hours. But then the question is, how strong is that realization going to be? How deep is that realization going to be? How permanent is that realization going to be? And how sort of ever-present is that ever-present awareness of the now going to be? As you can have, you know, nowness pointed out and have it click sort of right away, and you can have I amness pointed out and have it sort of click right away, but then you'll find, you know, within the next hour or so, you've forgotten it, and you're back to the self-contraction, back to the ordinary bound itself, and forgotten the deeper self, the true self, the pure I amness that is one with the ultimate ground of, of being. So the question then is, how long will it take to have that as a really permanent, deep, unshakable realization? Mm-hmm. And that's where we're saying anywhere from, you know, five to 20 years. And mm-hmm. again, it's just a matter of uh, what degree of realization that you're looking for. It's almost the same way as saying, you know, if you're going to go out and lift weights, mm-hmm. how muscular do you want your body to be? Do you want to just get a little bit in shape? Do you want to do Arnold Schwarzenegger? You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to take 10 years. And that's, you know, 40 minutes a day with week-long retreats three or four times a year mm-hmm. and occasionally, you know, month-long retreats. And you can do lesser amounts and then have lesser amounts of deepness, of realization of this ever-present great perfection. So that's kind of something that every student has to decide for themselves. And it's usually just based upon the purity of their seeking and the depth of their desire for realization, the depth of their sort of prior commitments as Bodhisattva vows is one example. And given the depth of these factors will determine sort of how much, if I can put it in sort of weirdly quantified terms, Mm -hmm. how much enlightenment you want how much of this supreme identity you want to realize, how much do you want it to be present through all states of awareness so that it remains present not just during the waking state, but in the dream state as lucid dreaming and in the deep formless state as pellucid dreaming and then present basically around the clock as the ever-present witnessing no self-self. And so that, you know, you're talking 10, 15 years for that kind of permanent, deep, and profound realization. Whereas you can have pointing out instructions and get a good glimpse of this I amness within an hour or so. But it's certainly the case, and people should realize that if they are really serious about working out and developing a real set of muscles, that it's going to take a decade. Mm-hmm. and of just really serious and sincere practice and 
preferably alongside of a truly qualified master mm. who will, by using one of those maps of meditation, will have an understanding of when you're on track and when you're off track right. and be able to you know, correct any misunderstandings that you'll have on the spiritual path. And the number of misunderstandings on the spiritual path are legion. <laughs> so many ways that you can mistake the ego, the separate self, for the true self or the true no-self and get overinflated and get narcissistic explosions and have truly profound misunderstandings of what the supreme identity means and mm -hmm. of what being one with Godhead means, being one with Buddha minds means, and the number of ways that you can get that wrong, even pathologically so, are mm. a lot. So preferably, you're doing your five to ten years with a qualified master who is you know, trained in one of the legitimate traditions and is qualified to pass that transmission on. So I you know, would also really recommend carefully working with qualified teachers that have tread the path and are there as spiritual guides for you. Mm. That's a great point. So up to this point, we've mostly been talking about this area that you write about, which you've recently started calling horizontal enlightenment. Right. But you speak about the opposite, or not the opposite, but another kind of enlightenment, which is vertical. So you have this kind of horizontal and vertical dimension, you know, right. and just picturing like a kind of graph here. I found when I, when I first read this idea, when I was actually uh, working for you at Integral Institute, I just found it such a radical idea. And I, w I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what vertical enlightenment is and, and how it's different than the more traditional understanding of, of enlightenment, which we've been talking about up to this point. Sure. One of the things that psychologists, again, interested in East-West integration have been doing over the past 20 or 30 years is, as I said, they've taken all of the maps of consciousness and the maps of development and put them all on the table and said, okay, what do they have in common? What do they not have in common? Where are they all essentially identical? Where do they differ? And looking initially, of course, at ways in which they are similar. Because if you find something that all of the maps of consciousness of the world agree on, then you probably found something very, very important. And the existence of five major states of consciousness, for example, is something that is universally found in various traditions. And so we take that as an important ingredient of this comprehensive map. But one of the things we found is there are types of development that only modern Western developmental psychology has discovered. And this does have to do with specifically certain types of structures of consciousness that unfold in stages and that are not visible by introspection. And these structures are ones that were first looked at by Piaget, for example, mm -hmm. and uh, Gene Gepser and Kohlberg, and then refined as certain 
difficulties with their structures of consciousness were dealt with, and then they were, were refined. We found researchers like Abraham Maslow and Claire Graves and Jane Lovinger, and these were all essentially variations on worldviews. And what this meant was that one of the things that developed is not only sort of an identification through states of consciousness, but in just the ordinary waking state that one's worldviews tended to grow and develop. We found that there were multiple intelligences that human beings have. They have mathematical intelligence, kinesthetic intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence, and these all grow and develop through stages. And so these stages, however, again, are not something that can be seen by introspecting. The first sort of major investigator of these structures of consciousness and the stages they went through was Gene Gebser. And he named the major stages of development archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, integral, and higher. And these are actual worldviews that arrange one's perceptions according to the structures of the mind at those particular stages of development. Other things that undergo development are one's moral sense, for example. And there are six or seven major stages of moral development that individuals go through. And these are, we think that these as vertical stages as opposed to sort of the horizontal states and just calling them horizontal and vertical just arbitrarily. But so there's vertically moving. There's all of these multiple intelligences and the stages that they go through. So there are five or six stages of moral development. There are eight or nine stages of the self-concept. There are seven or eight stages of needs and motivations. And these are something that one doesn't find in any of the maps of the contemplative traditions. Right. And so you sort of look at that and you go, well, that's interesting now. And one of the reasons you don't find these particular maps in any of the contemplative maps is, as I've said, these can't be seen introspecting. So you can sit on a meditation map and look within, for example, and you'll never see a thought that says, this is a moral stage three thought. This is a moral stage five thought. That's not the type of information that introspection gives you. Introspection will give you, you know, I'm now having an image, I'm now seeing this concept, I'm now having a bright illumination, I'm now feeling bliss, I'm now feeling vast openness, and, and so on. In other words, introspection gives you states, mm. but not structures. And these structures are something that are rather uniquely the discovery of the modern West. Now, its structures only go about two-thirds of the way as far as they could go. In other words, the structures that the West examines are just pre-personal to personal, and they don't really look at any transpersonal structures, although we know they're there and we have empirical evidence for them. So the West is kind of drawn up short in finding any spiritual structures. 
But for the early structures that it has found, it's extremely important. So if we look at the development of values, for example, and this was done by both Abe Maslow and, and Claire Graves, we find those values moving through archaic and dissociated values, which are just very primitive, into egoic, power, narcissistic values, into traditional, fundamentalist, concrete values, and from there into formal, operational, modern, scientific values, from there into postmodern, pluralistic, relativistic values, and then from there into integral values and higher. And those values, you can be at any stage of those values and undergo meditative training. Hmm. And you can, in fact, complete meditative training. You can go such that you are at a traditional and fundamentalist level of values vertically. And you can complete meditation training in Zen, for example, and go all the way from gross to subtle to causal to non-dual and mm. still remain at the fundamentalistic level of development. And the book Zen at War, for example, was a shocking example of Zen masters at an ethnocentric fundamentalist level of development that it nonetheless had their states of consciousness were non-dual. Mm. And so it becomes very important to see that we have at least two major types of development. One is mm. through these states of consciousness and the levels associated with them. And that happens in meditation. And one is through these structures, these vertical structures of consciousness and the levels associated with them. And mm. that occurs just through natural development, but not necessarily through meditative development. So we have these two different types of developmental process. They're relatively independent, and you can achieve a great deal of growth in one and not much growth or almost none at all in the others. And so that has become a very important notion because it shows us what meditation can do, and it shows us what it can't do. Mm. And it also then shows us these two types of enlightenment. And one is horizontal enlightenment where your identity has transcended and included or moved through all five of these major states of consciousness and so is identified with the non-dual suchness. And the other is vertical where consciousness is actually moved through these vertical levels of altitude and is at the higher or highest level of vertical structural development, which is at sort of super integral levels. And so we call that vertical enlightenment, and we call the other one horizontal enlightenment. They're two different things, both of which are very important. Mm. And part of the reason I'm guessing that after some 25 years or so of writing and not really uh, you were considered amongst many people a recluse for a while. You really focused on your writing work and, of course, had uh, personal relationships and a lot of friendships and things, but weren't so active in the public. Right. And 
a few years ago, you started a couple organiz- or one organization, in particular Integral Institute, and since then there have been some more developments, and you started the uh, Integral Spiritual Center, and, right. and then most recently the Integral Life has started. And I'm, I'm wondering, was part of the, the impetus to actually create these organizations and, and do the things they're doing, does it have to do with the vertical enlightenment piece? Does it have to do well, with, or with both, I guess? Yeah, well, it's certainly in part it does. But the reason I was sort of looked at it as reclusive actually was a much different reason, and that was I started sort of this theoretical integrative work, you know, mm. really when I was quite young and began meditation when I was quite young, and I wrote my first book, The Spectrum of Consciousness, when I was 23 years old. Mm. And after writing that book, and it got just a lot of real critical praise, I taught it at various open universities for about a year. And I found that I was still having new ideas and was trying to write those down while I was also teaching books that I had already written. Right. And I found that I really couldn't do it very well. That I get so intensely concentrative mm. and focused when I'm writing that I just, it's something that I just really prefer to focus on just by itself. Right. And so I just gave up, uh, formally gave up appearing at any conferences and gave up doing any interviews and gave up teaching. And the reason that I gave all of it up instead of just some of it is by this time, most of the people holding these conferences were friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one person would ask me to show up at their conference, and then if I went to theirs, then, you know, my other friend would say, well, you went to his, why, why won't you come to mine? <laughs> and I got all of this sort of, you know, pull. I felt like I was being drawn and quartered. And so I just said, no, I'm not going to do any of them. And for the next 22, 23 years, I gave four interviews, and that was it. Appeared no place else and didn't teach and just wrote. And basically wrote basically a book a year uh, for the next 23 years. And what started to happen at that point is I felt that I had enough of the essential ideas down on paper Mm. that if I got run over by a bus, you know, tomorrow, it would be okay. Much of what, you know, I felt my mission was to get across would be out there in print for those who wanted access to it. And so it just started that we were having dialogues, you know, with my friends and recording them. And so we put that up on the web as Integral Naked. Right. And Integral Institute just started growing up around that. I never really set out to start Integral Institute. It was just a bunch of friends hanging around and got interested in it. And so we started that, started a website and started membership in it. And it went just really phenomenally well. And we had really extraordinary success and so I just sort of, you know, kept doing that. I'm still kind of ambivalent about it because I still consider myself essentially a writer and, mm-hmm. you know, not even a guru or teacher in that sense, but a pandit, a spiritual pundit, a spiritual theorist mm-hmm. and integrative writer. And that's still essentially what I see myself as. But we've got these other things up and running now and they're doing really well and they are conveying types of information that you just really can't get elsewhere. Looking at these two different types of developmental sequences, for example, right. um, is a very, very important notion 
but you just can't get it any place outside of my work. Right. And so I'm really glad to stay associated with them, and we have you know continued to start new organizations associated with this, and uh, the latest is is being run by Rob Smith and is Integral Life Incorporated, and we're going up as IntegralLife.com, a portal, and I'm really, really delighted to be part of that. So I kind of stayed in that way, but I got this sort of recluse thing. I just backed into it just in terms of, you know, my own writing and being something that that's really all I could focus on, and so I didn't attend you know, right. conferences and stuff. Although I knew all the people doing it. I mean, I had a very rich social life. I wasn't right. actually a hermit. You know, all sorts of people were coming through and visiting me. Um, right. And I would, you know, was hanging out with everybody and, and all of that. But it's true that I wasn't, I wasn't showing up at, at conferences and I wasn't teaching publicly. So it gave the impression that I was just somehow just sitting up in a cave and not talking to anybody. Right, right, right. Which is, which is far <laughs> from the truth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I saw IntegralLife.com recently, and it's a really great-looking site. So, uh, and it looks like there's Terrific. some great things happening there. So, yeah, for people that are interested in in some of these ideas, that's a great place to learn more and, and to meet people too that are that are also exploring some of this stuff. Right, right. Good connections there. Yeah, right. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.